You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Dr. Mark Lowenthal, an internationally recognized expert on intelligence, who is president and CEO of the Intelligence and Security Academy, LLC, a national security education, training, and consulting company. From 2002 to 2005, Dr. Lowenthal served as the assistant director of central intelligence for analysis and production, and also as the vice chairman for evaluation on the National Intelligence Council. Prior to these duties, he served as counselor to the director of central intelligence. Dr. Lowenthal was the staff director of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the 104th Congress from 95 to 97, where he directed the committee's study on the future of the intelligence community. He also served in the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, the INR, as both an office director and deputy assistant secretary of state, and has been the senior specialist in U.S. foreign policy at the Congressional Research Service for the Library of Congress. In 2005, Dr. Lowenthal was awarded the National Intelligence Distinguished Service Medal, the intelligence community's highest award. And in 2006, he received FCA's Distinguished Service Award for service to the intelligence community. His book, Intelligence from Secrets to Policy, which is now in its sixth edition, has become the standard college and graduate school textbook on this subject. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. And back in 1988, Dr. Lowenthal was the grand champion on Jeopardy. So Dr. Lowenthal, thank you for joining us at the International Spy Museum. Thank you for having me. So I, I wanted to kind of start this conversation talking about intelligence education. As I mentioned, your book, you literally wrote the book uh, <laughs> on, on intelligence education, but for both professionals and civilians alike. So this is a chance to wax philosophical a little bit, as much or as little as you want to. Big, broad question. Why is intelligence education so important today? Well, there's, there's two answers. To that. I mean, in terms of the profession itself, let me deal with that one first. We're not really good at this in the intelligence community. I mean, the CIA trains its officers, and DIA trains its officers. I once told this to Director Tennant. I explained this to him, and he said, so we put people in stovepipes as soon as we get them? And I said, absolutely. And George said, why would we do that? I said, how about gross stupidity? He said, absolutely. <laughs> so the, you know, the, if you look at the military, which you know very well, you train the way you fight. Right. We don't do that. You train jointly. We don't do that. So in terms of the intelligence community, you know, Jim Clapper's goal of intelligence integration would be easier if you actually started at the beginning and trained people to think of themselves as intelligence community officers and also as officers in NSA, CIA, whatever it is. So, that, that, so that's one issue. that You find that people really end up in their own little community foxhole, whatever it is. In terms of the public, 
different issue because most people think about intelligence, it's spying. Well, yes, it is, but there's a lot more to it. In fact, it was inst instructive to me when I was reading um, Richard Helms' memoirs. Now, Helms, you know, was an OSS officer. And he was director of operations, and then he was the director of central intelligence. He was an ops guy. He has this chapter, he has this heading for one of his chapters saying, the most important thing we do in intelligence is analysis. It's putting papers in front of policymakers. And I read this, and I said to John McLaughlin, who was the deputy DCI, and I said, did Dick really believe this? He said, oh, God, yes. I said, God, I wouldn't have guessed it. So, I mean, the public really doesn't understand what we do in intelligence, and I think it's useful for them to understand it. Yes, some of it is espionage, and some of it is daring do, and a lot of it is reading and thinking and writing. That's really what it's about. I'm putting papers in front of policymakers, not to help them make decisions exactly, but uh, the phrase that Clapper likes, that I invented was, to help them bound their uncertainty, to help them have a sense of what's left and right, and you know, where, where's my space to make a decision. And I think it's, it's just an important civic lesson for people. This was, if you just have collection, then you just have a bunch of stuff, a bunch right. of data that means nothing to anybody. Somebody's got to do something with it. You've got to yeah. process it. You've got to exploit it. And you've got to give it to an analyst so she can make sense out of this is what I think it means or I think this is false. Somebody has to do that. And you don't want the policymaker doing that. It's, right. not their, it's not their job. Well, and, and very rarely do they have the expertise. I mean, right. you have one member of Congress right now who's former CIA. Only one? Only one right now. Okay. Will Hurd, and he was an operations guy. Uh, when, when I didn't even know that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we talked to him uh, about a year ago. Um, but yeah, that's it. I mean, everybody yeah. else are you know lawyers or they're business people. They just don't have the right. background. Let me ask you more specifically about the the, the professional side and and what happened after nine eleven. Because after nine eleven, you had a rapid influx of people coming in. <laughs> And you've talked about this before, a bit of a, a kind of a generational shift yes. of new people. You know, uh, you don't need the Russian speakers anymore, at least we thought in the early, <laughs> early 2000s. Wrong, wrong call, but Oops. Yes. Yeah, uh, you need a bunch wrong. of Arab speakers, right. you need a bunch of Middle East experts, mm -hmm. people who are being brought in and pulled out of school, uh, you know, in the mid-2000s. And so they maybe had a decade on the job now right. uh, or less. Uh, how has this flipped everything on its head? It's had an interesting sort of generational, demographic, intellectual effect. Um, first of all, if you look at the experience level of the intelligence community, it's like a sine curve or a camel humps. So we hired a lot of people in the Reagan administration, Casey, build up. Um, there's a big decline in the Bush 41 administration, which the intelligence community ends up paying the peace dividend, not the military, which is, you know, so we're going to take the money out of the 10% of the budget, right. Right, not the 90 and then um, you have this big buildup again in 2000. So the, the experience level of the workforce is very uneven. So that's the first issue. Um, so I think the, la the last data point I saw was that 60% of the analysts have less than six years of experience. And that's kind of scary. Right. So I have said publicly often that this is the least experienced intelligence workforce that we've had since 1947. When I say that, my former CIA colleagues get crazed and say, no, no, these are great people. I'm saying, I'm not saying they're not great people. I'm saying they don't have a lot of experience. So that, there's that issue. The experience that they do have is primarily counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, CT and COIN, which are important issues, but they're tactical issues. Right. Looking for onesies, twosies, groups of six and 12. They're not strategic issues. And... I believe, and most of my colleagues believe, that it's easier to go from strategic down to tactical than it is to go from tactical to strategic. So there's that issue. As we now start to see the nation, like you said, right, Russia has made a comeback. Yeah. Bring back the Russian speakers. You know, China, um, Iran, those are all strategic issues. Right. 
So now I've got a cadre of people who have no experience in dealing with these issues, and suddenly they have to deal with them. So there's sort of an intellectual imbalance there as well. You, you gave a, um, a briefing to a congressional committee about contractors and mm-hmm. about uh, their use and their <coughs> rapid rise also after 9-11. That seemed to be one of the easy, perhaps cost-effective solutions. Um, I, I look at this – I mean, I may be wrong. That's why I want to ask you about it. A bit of a brain drain from the professional intelligence community because the money is way better. Right. The hours probably are a little better. Um, and, you know, it, it's – you have people sitting outside Langley. I'm not going to name names because we're going to, you know, we, we have we like a lot of them. But you know, saying hey, you want to do the same job right. you're doing now for three times. I mean, I saw it in the military too. Sure, I, I, of course. I, when I when I was leaving Bosnia, I, you know, Halliburton and Kellogg, Brown and Root right. were like, you want to make ten times as much as you're making right now to come back to Bosnia, and it was like, oh, maybe, maybe, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about? I mean, has that been a positive change? I mean, I know they're doing great work in many cases. Well, I mean, but, I mean, I had when I was the assistant director at CIA. I had about a staff of 30. I, would, I think two-thirds, a third of it was contractors. And, and I use them as staff. Like, you know, there are certain things they're not allowed to do, but I use them as staff. The contractor thing is really the fault of Congress. Contractors are flavors of the month. So there are times when Congress says, you know, it would be cheaper if you use contractors, which now I'm not paying their pensions, not paying their health care. You actually are because the contractors paid their bill with that, which they have to. And then they'll say, oh, no, these people shouldn't be doing that. I want you to hire a government place. This just... You just go with the wind on this one. Right. In terms of you know contractors taking people out of the system and hiring them, that has been a problem. And when Mike Hayden was the director of CIA, he created a rule that if you left the government um, before you were due for retirement just to go work for a contractor, you're not going to hand in your blue badge on Friday and come back into that same slot on Monday. You're going to have to have a year cooling off so to sort of stop the rating. You know, mm-hmm. he said if you're retiring, if you, you filled out your time, you can do that. And he did that for the very reason you said, which you know, look, they're offering these young guy, young men and women a lot more money, maybe better hours, different pressures. And so you know, how do you say no to that? So it has been a problem. And I think Hayden's solution was a good solution that you can't just, you know, flip over completely. Well, let me ask you about technology, because you, your, your career at CIA spans, you know, the pre-technology, I don't mean the dark ages, I mean... We had uh, quills. Yeah. <laughs> My, so what I'm trying to get to is this analytical technology. You know, okay. the programs, the databases, right. the all the, the stuff that's been developed in the last 10, 15 years <laughs> to do analysis. You know, to where there's a lot less of just kind of sitting and thinking and a lot more putting things into programs with, you know, different kinds of, uh, of uh, computers computer analysis and algorithms that kind of spit information back at you. Have you seen this as a benefit, as a, as a negative? Uh, can we no longer just kind of think and write anymore? Uh, or is this kind of a, a old man, you know, ranting at the moon kind Grump, of thing? Grumpy right old man. Yeah. You want to be math hour yes. 11. <laughs> um, all right. It, it's there. It's, it's just happened. I mean, the data, databases are convenient in ways that, look, the computers only do two things. They store information and they allow you to write. That's all they do. They do not provide answers. Databases do not provide answers. Once you build a database, you then have to mine the database. You have to find the data that you're looking for. And as databases get bigger and bigger and bigger, they become their own little happy little haystack. So, and they won't provide you an answer. It's just a convenient way of stashing stuff. And but one of the problems that we discovered, and um, this came up in the the curveball incident. Curveball being the the, the Iraqi defector uh, into Germany who claimed he saw BW vans, right. later known as the wacky Iraqi and many less complimentary things. And so um, part of the problem was that once the Curveball's data got into a bunch of databases, 
It did exactly what we were told to do. We shared the intelligence. It metastasized across the intelligence community. And then when you realize it's bad, how do you find all those points where everybody's got it? So I asked um, Alan Wade, who is the CIO of the CIA, which is one of my favorite titles. <laughs> anyway, um, I said, Alan, how many databases do we have? He just started laughing. And I said, okay, <laughs> tell me. He said, well, we have community databases and agency databases and office databases and section databases and individual databases and team. I said, so we actually don't know how many databases we have. He said, absolutely not. <laughs> I said, and we don't. So what happens if who, who guards the database? Who makes sure that, you know, bad information doesn't get in or if bad information gets in, it gets out. He says, whoever's controlling the database. So we figured out how to fix the, the problem that Kerbal represented. It was a flagging problem. And I, I went to, to the director, and I, it was, this was one of those times when he said, you're the analytic guy, go fix this. I said, George, I got you like a 97% solution. He said, well, how do you mean? And I said, well, the good news is that we shared a lot of information. The bad news is that we shared wrong information. <laughs> and once it gets in there, it's hard to get out. But it will not change. Right, the basic, here I disagree with some of my colleagues. The basic skill set of a good analyst hasn't changed. You have to be able to read critically, which is not the same thing as reading. Mm -hmm. You have to read for you know intent, content, text, subtext, what didn't he say, things like that. Um, you have to be able to um, think critically. You have to be able to write well. Nothing is going to change the requirement for that skill set. All the other stuff is just sort of you know floating around you. And the I will say that, or now we're all going to sound like grumpy old men, <laughs> because I think the writing skills of the younger analysts has deteriorated. I see this in the student. I teach at Hopkins. I teach at the National Intelligence University. And now I teach uh, in, in Paris. I teach at Sciences Po. I teach an intelligence course in English. Um, and I find that, um, and I think this has to do with texting. Every time, I don't text. I find texting an abysmal way to communicate. So now they know I'm a grumpy old guy. <laughs> but I, you, know, you read text, it's like reading Tonto's dialogue in Lone Ranger. <laughs> me here, where are you? Eat soon. And then you say, all right, I'd like you to write me a paragraph. Oh, I can't do that. I, I don't write that. So I think writing skills have actually deteriorated. But I think the other stuff, it's just there. It's, 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 use, it's a tool. It's like right. any other tool. There are times when it's great and times when that's not the tool I wanted or needed. And the big data thing, and I hear I, I'm, I'm in the minority, my, my colleagues and I argue about this. You know, Henry Kissinger once said, what is throw eight and what do you do with it? What is big data and what do you do with it? Uh, to me, big data is a solution looking for a problem set. Right. Because at the end of the day, and you know this was you served in the field, commanders, policymakers don't want data. They want knowledge and expertise, and that ain't data. Right. Are we becoming too reliant on this technology? I, for instance, I, I think a great story is that the Navy is worried that GPS is going to be compromised. And so literally now at Annapolis, they're teaching celestial navigation to right. their police. Yeah. Well, it's just like, you know, you can't get so dependent on technology right. that if somebody pulls the rug out from on you, you're, you're, you know, you're stuck not knowing what to do. I, I'm not <laughs> saying that our databases are going to get crashed, or, 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 but, but you have to have a fallback. Yeah. What if it fails? What if the right. system fails? You know? I always tell when I'm teaching analysis, I say, you know, what if you don't get collection that day? You tell the president, I'm sorry, the satellites were down. We're just going to clean the files. Yeah. No, you get to write every day. Um, one of the other things that I tell analysts uh, when I'm teaching analysis is that you actually, and I, I, several of us believe this, you think better when you write, when you take a writing utensil on a piece of paper than you do when you type. Hmm. Typing is mechanical. The physical act of having to form words, I know it slows you down. I know it means you're going to have to type another draft later on, but you actually think better when you're writing. 
And so, you know, some of that has all gotten lost because it's just so much easier to just pound the keys. Yeah. I, I taught, <laughs> when I taught undergraduate at the University of Maryland, there were people who hadn't physically written oh, yeah. in years because they, in high school, they're on their computers taking notes. I know a young man and, who's, uh, he'll be 24. Um, he can print and he can type, but he couldn't write a paragraph in script if he had to. I mean, he just, he just can't do it. Now, I don't, actually don't allow computers in my class hmm. because I know that somebody in the back is going to be sitting doing email instead of listening. Right. <laughs> Let me ask you, 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 you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in 2008 that I think uh, is really telling. Well, I, let me ask you because it's been several years since, so I kind of want to see if things have changed, gotten worse, gotten better. But I'm going to read the first little chunk of it, and then we dive into it. You said the U.S. intelligence community has failed. We have failed as a public institution, as a profession. We have failed not because of 9-11 or Iraq's alleged weapons of mass destruction or Iran's supposed WMD or the horror stories about renditions and detentions. We have failed because we have not explained ourselves adequately and comprehensively to the public, describing our role, the limits within which we work in our view of what can be reasonably expected from us. We have failed because we have allowed ourselves to be caricatured, vilified, and misrepresented by people who do not know us, do not like us, and do not understand us, or simply see us as a convenient fall guys. You wrote this in 08. Better, much the same, worse? I mean, have we... Slightly better, okay. I would say, um, but not completely solved. I mean, you know, first of all, as, as we said at the beginning, you know, most people think about intelligence, they think about espionage. That's that's it. Maybe a spy satellite, uh, maybe an operation, but that's what it is. And as I said, that's that's not the core of what intelligence is. And it is a convenient thing to, to beat up on intelligence. And I think there's there's still people who don't understand, you know, whenever we, quote, miss something. So the, the first sentence will be, Gee, $70 billion and you didn't get that right? Well, it, it's not like we were spending all $70 billion on that one issue. You know, intelligence is sort of like fertilizer. You spread it out. You spread out your $70 billion. Um, D&I Clapper has had this interesting back and forth with um, Dianne Feinstein when she was chairing the Senate Intelligence Committee. She kept saying, I want you to be more efficient. And he said, no, ma'am, you want me to be more effective. Right. And they're not the same thing. And in fact, I often explain to students that um, intelligence is very inefficient. I can't say, look, Vince, we've got a real serious problem. Can you just think faster this morning? You know, <laughs> we're really pressed. No, you're going to think as fast as the synapses move back and forth in your head. And so I, I, I still don't think there's a good understanding of what we do and what we can't do. And we don't give out omniscience pills in the cafeteria in the morning. I wish we did, but we don't. And it's interesting to see how certain policymakers will react to this. It's interesting to see how members in the Congress, and as, as you noted, I, I worked on the Hill, I, I, chair, I, I was the staff director of a committee. Yeah, I, I still don't think it's as good as it could be. I think it is slightly better than when I wrote that in a way, but that was in the immediate aftermath of uh, the creation of the DNI and the right. Iraq Commission and the 9-11 Commission. I still think it could be better than it is. Well, one thing that certainly hasn't changed is the politicization of intelligence. And, and what's always been extraordinary to me is the intelligence community has a um, an expectation of 100% success. Right. And you don't expect HUD to stop all the homeless from being homeless. <laughs> you don't expect HHS to make sure all diseases are cured. You know, you don't even expect the DOD to win every battle. But somehow when intelligence fails for whatever reason, everyone's like, how could that possibly happen? This is easy. You should have known this. Actually, yes. well, you know, one of the, I don't like sports metaphors a lot. But one of the, and I don't like sports that much. I do like baseball, um, which I know most people find boring. But um. So in baseball, if you're a professional baseball player, your fielding percentage should be around 950, or they're going to ask you to sit down. Your batting percentage is about 260. So there's clearly a different expectation about catching and throwing the ball and hitting it with a little wooden stick. 
Intelligence is kind of like that. Sometimes we get asked fielding questions. Who's the commander of the North Korean Western Fleet? All right, give me five minutes in a Google, and I'll get you an answer. <laughs> Sometimes you get asked a batting, what's Kim Jong-un going to do next? Ooh, really? I mean, so part of the issue is what's the nature of the question you're being asked for? If it's a factual kind of thing, oh, you should be pretty good at that. But if it's something when you're trying to estimate other people's behavior, right. which is really what we're doing, that's very difficult. And I don't think there's a good expectation, a good understanding yet of how difficult that can be. I mean, are policymakers deluded, for lack of a better word, thinking that the, the 04 uh, – reorganization, the creation of the ODNI, the creation of the big capital I, capital C intelligence community has solved all these problems? I, I think to some degree. I mean, I think uh, whenever, the, I, when after um, Abdul Muttalib tried to blow up the Northwest Airliner coming into Detroit by lighting his underwear. By the underwear bomb. <laughs> yeah, the, the BVD bomber. Yeah. Um, and members of Congress saying, how could this happen? We created the DNI. Well, I don't think bin Laden was sitting in his cave going, Damn, they got a DNI. We're, we're screwed. Call the guys back. We'll do an audible. You know, I mean, this idea that it solved everything. I don't think it solved very much at all, quite frankly. Yeah. So I think this this, this misunderstanding that this organizational fix will change will create a different outcome analytically. You also have to remember that the staff that wrote the DNI on the Senate Government Reform Committee, as it was in those days prided themselves on the fact that they knew very little about the intelligence community. <laughs> this was a point of honor for these people, because they therefore were virginal and untouched and uncorrupted. Yeah, so I think there's a false expectation about it. Uh, and, yeah, and Clapper, you know, he, sa- he said this in his confirmation hearing in 2010. He said, you know, if the expectation is we're, I, we're never going to, I'm not going to have another terrorist attack on my watch, we should just quit now. Right. I can't promise you that. And I give him a lot of credit for that. Let's just be upfront and say that. You, you see a lot of this in some of the soul searching that's done after the fact, the after action reports, and many of them being done by congressional committees right. and other things. And, and particularly, let's talk about the Iraq war because, <laughs> or, or Iraqi WDs, because uh, yes. there's no one probably that has a better understanding of what actually happened there that you do. And, and you've been very vehemently opposed to the conventional wisdom, let's call it, that we went to war in Iraq because of a bad NIE, because of bad intelligence. Um, and you've argued that we didn't go to war with bad intelligence. We actually went to war uh, because no one – well, not because, but no one read the NIE in the first place. No one who mattered. Yeah. And, and you actually talk about the fact that out of the 77 senators who voted to authorize the use of force in Iraq, only six of them read beyond the five-page summary mm-hmm. of the NIE. We made them sign. It had every code word imaginable. And so there we made them sign. We didn't want them to leak, although congressmen don't leak as much as executive branch. So we, we know that only six read it. Uh, several others were briefed by their staffs. Um, and I've had this ongoing argument with a friend of mine who was one of the, it was on the Senate Intelligence Committee. He said, well, we brief people. I said, you know what, Jim? You're voting to take the country to war. You read the estimate. You don't get a briefing. I'm sorry. This is your job. So, you know, even if I take that, Jim's number, so maybe a dozen had some familiarity with it, that still doesn't give you 77 senators. So the, the estimate was a political function. Um, Democrats voted against the first war in Iraq. Um, I think 10 Democrats voted when, in the, when the Senate voted whether or not to authorize the use of force against to free Kuwait. The vote was 52 to 47. Only 10 of the positive votes were Democrats. All the others voted against. And which was a political thing. It was mm-hmm. George Mitchell trying to undermine the president. 
they realized they made a mistake, which the war was a huge success and it was popular. Right. So when the next one rolled around, they wanted an excuse to be... Uh, Sam Nunn said that his vote against the war, the first war, was the worst vote he ever made in 26 years in the Senate. So when the next one rolled around, they wanted to be on the side of the angels. I was the person who received the facts from the Senate on the Sunday afternoon that it came in. I don't even remember why I was on the building on a Sunday. I typically did not work weekends. I worked lots of nights, but I was there. And it said, we want a technical update of the 1998 estimate on Iraq WMD. You have three weeks. And we, I convened a meeting that night at 8 o'clock, which made me immensely popular. <laughs> um, and the deputy director, who was acting at that point, was George, was out of town, um, said, what is this? And I said, this is political cover. I said, we believe this WMD. I had this interesting moment of clairvoyance. I said, we believe this WMD in Iraq. The Democrats are going to use this so they have reason to vote for us. I said, but let's just say, God forbid, we're wrong. It's all going to be our fault. Right. I mean, I just saw this coming. And to me, one of the most interesting moments in this is um, one of the principal drafters was Bob Walpole, who is the National Intelligence Officer for Strategy Programs. And Bob and I had worked together in INR 16 years before. And one night he comes drifting past my office in the director's suite. And I said, how's it going? How's the draft going? And he looked really sort of hangdog. And I said, what's the matter? He said, I don't know. I said, Robert, what's the problem? And he said, I don't think this is a good reason to go to war. I, th you know, I think there's WMD in Iraq, but I wouldn't go to war over it. I said, that's not our job. He said, I know. I just don't think this is a good reason. So, so the principal drafter of the estimate was not in support of the policy outcome that we knew was going to come. So we didn't write it for the president and the vice president. We wrote it for the Senate. We talked about the Senate's vote. Um, it didn't convince enough senators. Enough senators never read the thing. And then Colin Powell goes to the U.N. and does this presentation, and nobody votes for us there either. Right. So the interesting thing is it didn't actually affect the decision. But the legend is that we caused the war. We didn't. I mean, you've argued that the Bush administration had made up its mind long before I it came to I think they had, for reasons that I don't think we'll ever quite know. I mean, I think part of it was, you know, you had a lot of veterans from the Bush 41 administration who felt that they had unfinished business. They should have gone to Baghdad. Um, I think part of it was that, you know, remember Saddam Hussein tried to kill Bush 41 and Clinton when they went to visit Kuwait. Right. And I think this became personal. I think, I think Bush 43 um, took it personally. Now, I don't know if that's why he went to war, right. but it had nothing to do with the intelligence. We just became a convenient excuse after, way after the fact. Let me ask you in a broader sense about the difficulty of proving a negative, because that's really what this is, mm -hmm. right? The idea is, how do you prove there aren't weapons of mass destruction in right. Iraq? It's much easier to go, oh, there they are, right? Right. But your job, let's call it, or the intelligence community's job at that point, if they were going to stop us from going to war, would be to say, they're not there. Right. right, but that. How do you do that? Like, how difficult is that? You, um, without being on the ground, without having inspections, I don't know how you would do it. I really don't. I mean, we now have an agreement with Iran. We can inspect their facilities. Okay, this is kind of simple. You can get in. You can get out. This was always the issue between Ronald Reagan and the Soviet Union on arms control. And he said, you know, if we can't do on-site inspections, we're not going to have a treaty. And obviously, the Russians balked at this, and they finally caved in. So I don't know how we would have proven it. The trouble is. You know, there's this, the perfect, in, in arm, I used to do, I did arms control intelligence for a long time. There's this um, sort of ironic saying, the perfect cheater and the perfect partner look identical. So I don't know how we were supposed to prove a negative. I, I think the thing we did get wrong in the estimate, besides the numbers, you know, the fact of, is we didn't think about Iran as a place. What is this place like as a place? We wrote a technical estimate. We didn't write about Iraq. What is Iraq like as a place? And it's a liocracy. 
Everybody lies to everybody in the Saddam government. And we pick up the lies. Right. Well, they're talking about bugs and gas. Well, gee, sounds like bugs and gas to me. So I think that's part. That was, and this I only realized this when I got to Baghdad, um, that we didn't think about it. And the NIO responsible for the region really had no part in the estimate, which was a technical estimate. That's the part we got wrong. We didn't. I don't know that it would have changed the outcome, right? But at least it might have stopped us and asked, made us say, "Hmm, there may be another answer here." Would, would you categorize that as mirror imaging of not a, not a, not realizing they're acting in such a way that we never would? No, I don't think it was mirror imaging. I, I just think it was we just didn't think about the place in which this activity was happening and what is that what might that tell you about their behavior so you also co-wrote an article last fall in international journal of intelligence and counterintelligence about what you call the pursuit of perfection in intelligence analysis and the big broad question to begin with is can the analysis success rate change i mean is there vast room for improvement Uh, are we pretty good at this already and, of course, can we ever be better, like close to 100%? I think I know your answer, but let's throw <laughs> it at you. <laughs> All right, let's get that one off the bookstore. No, we're not yeah. going to hit 100%. Okay, perfect is not a grade. Um, it can always be marginally better, but, I mean, Ron Marks and I wrote the article. Because I, and it was, we wrote the article mostly to provoke a conversation. It was somewhat provocative. So many of the things that I write are. Um, to ask, you know, maybe this is as good as it gets, and it's actually pretty good. Um, and and maybe we should stop trying to tinker with, you know, the idea, for example, if you read the um, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, where they have all these strictures on how to write analysis, you are not going to legislate good analysis. I'm right. sorry. You can't do that. And most of the people who wrote the legislation don't understand analysis. But I mean, our, our point of our article was, you know, you have to accept the limits of, of analysis, like in, in military operations. You have to accept the fact that, unfortunately, People are going to get hurt and die. You'd like to have a perfect operation where everyone comes home alive, unlikely in a large operation. In the Bin Laden operation, small, possible. Large operation, unlikely. You have to accept the fact that, regrettably, war results in casualties. Well, I think you have to accept the fact that in analysis, sometimes you're going to be wrong and that no amount of tinkering is going to get you to 100. It's sort of like Zeno's paradox about you're constantly going half the distance to the goal. So I, I was, we wrote it to sort of provoke a conversation about, well, how good should it be? And some of the time we're really, really good, and some of the time we get it wrong. Let me, let me play devil's advocate sure. because we, we've spent now billions of dollars setting up research facilities to do think tank you know, uh, thought experiments on how to do it better. We have private sector people creating best practices and analytical models and tools. We already talked about all this new technology that's being developed, uh, figure out ways to sort out all the big data that NSA or whomever else is bringing in. Um, and you have analytical standards that have been created yeah. by both the ODNI and by CIA mm-hmm. and then without other communities. Um, and you argue that really the standards to judge this by, are there two different ones. One is accuracy, yep. but I, I think you're arguing the more important one is utility. Can you talk a little bit about Sure. That? Well, the accuracy one's kind of stark. You either got it right or you didn't. Although yeah. the trouble is, a lot of the time, you know, we'll make calls, estimates, whatever, not predictions, and you're not going to know for years if it's right. I mean, for years, we assumed that the Soviet Union would collapse. Okay, well, it took 45 <laughs> years. It was a really good call. There's this, this story about... um. And senior analyst in the British Foreign Office resigned, retired in the 1950s, and his retirement party said, every year somebody said there would be a general European war, and every year I said they were wrong, and I was only wrong twice. <laughs> now, statistically, this is great. Missing two world wars is kind of bad, so part of it, it depends on what you miss. 
Um, so, so that part's easy. So the second part is uh, the standards. Um, was that, I'm sorry, the second part of the question was? Well, is the idea of how, the utility of the intelligence. The utility. That's really difficult. This used to drive my boss crazy when I worked at INR, Motor Bramowitz, who's a brilliant foreign service officer. He would say, I'm not sure we're making a difference. Um, I just asked my class at the National Intelligence University, I had the same question, that how can you tell intelligence matters? And these were all um, you know, junior officers, 03s, 04s. And they, they looked at me and said, it's something you've got to think about. Um, one of the ways you can tell if intelligence matters is to ask yourself, would there have been a different decision had there not been intelligence or had there been better intelligence? And then you can sort of work your way, you thread your way through that. Um, the trouble is you don't... You don't have a lot of intelligence that, oh, my God, there's the answer. This is what right. we have to do. Intelligence is a, is a cumulative experience. You're building a bodies of knowledge that policymakers then use to help them make decisions. And so it's very, very hard to sort of thread your way through this. Um, Dick Kerr was the deputy DCI and the acting DCI in the Bush 41 administration. And he did a study in a very good book called Analyzing in, in Intelligence. Um, in the first edition, where he looked at 50 years of U.S. intelligence on the Soviet Union and said, how do we do? This was our big, big issue. How did we do? And his conclusion, and he did can be fairly hard-nosed about our own work, and he said it, at the end, he said, you know, we served a really interesting range of policymakers from Harry Truman down through Ronald Reagan. That's an interesting range of people. Yeah. And we were pretty good at helping them avoid major crises, avoid war with the Soviet Union, thread their way through most of the crises they have, and bring the Cold War to a successful conclusion. He said, that's a pretty good record. Now, I don't know what grade he would give it, but if you look at it, you step back and look at this big picture like Dick did, as opposed to, you know, the nitnoid of, oh, that, that, you said oil was going to be $35, right. now it's 33 That's an interesting analysis, I think, that it did matter. It made it, like I said, our job, and, and as I said, Clapper's fond of it, our job is to help policymakers bound their uncertainty. We rarely know things deadlock certain. But if we can tell a policymaker, I'd worry a lot more about that. I really wouldn't worry as much about that. That's useful to them. You know, senior policymakers, as you know, are frightfully busy people. If you can help them use their time better and focus on the things that are most important, that's a huge service. It's not going to make a dramatic headline. It'll never make a good movie. But it's a really useful service. And that's sort of, that is what we do. Is there a detriment to policymakers demanding perfection, and what, what I'm real, what I'm thinking about, like, I'm a diplomatic historian. I think mm -hmm. I think of George Kennan, right? We talk about the Soviet right. Union collapsing. When he wrote the Long Telegram, he was the outlier, right? Yes. He, he, he that could have ended his career. This guy, everybody's saying one thing, he's coming back and saying, "No, you need to do it this way." Mm -hmm. But he loved being the outlier. Well, yeah, he, <laughs> that was his personality. That was his thing. But are, are we are we stopping young, good analysts or old good analysts? From thinking outside the box, to use the tired cliche, yes. if we are, if we are going to punish them for screw ups every once in a while. I think I think we do. I, I said in one of the last meetings I attended as assistant director, we had a, a meeting with um, the House Intelligence Committee, and um, I was thinking directly one member when I said this, and she wasn't happy with it. I said, if you want analysts to take risks and you want them to think out of the box, you have to give them the right to be wrong some of the time. You can't have perfect calls and risky analysis. I tell analysts, take a risk. I mean, as long as you're not putting U.S. national security <laughs> in danger, and the odds are you're not, every so often take a flyer. Take, take a what if. I think a good analyst does that, knowing that you might be wrong. But it, 
but it, you know, one, I think one of the mistakes we make in analysis, and this becomes evident in the Arab Spring, is linear thinking. Today will be like tomorrow will be like, and this is how we basically experience the world. Right. Most days are pretty much like one after another, and then every so often, oh dear, that one went wrong. That's linear thinking. Well, that may be a good way to sort of live your personal life most of the time, but it's not a good way to live an intelligence officer's life. And I, th- I always tell intelligence officers, you should take the situation that you're dealing with, or the country, or, the, or whatever it is, and ask yourself on a recurring basis, how could this change 90 degrees left or right, for good or for bad? Not just how could it get worse. How, what would I begin to see? So right. I have some indicator right. that, oh, there's a change there. I mean, Gorbachev was, was, was an interesting example of that. Um, the Soviet analyst, I found, couldn't catch up to Gorbachev. They couldn't understand where he was going. Um, and a bunch of us said, well, he's going in an interesting direction, but it doesn't work, end well. I actually called the Soviet coup in 1986. I said, there's no way that the party and the army and the, the ministries are going to allow him to do this. And my Soviet analyst said, oh, you, that your trouble is you're not a Soviet analyst. I said, no, your trouble is that you are yeah. a Soviet analyst. So I think that that... I think you have to encourage analysts to do that. Just take a flyer. If for no other reason than to just sort of, it, you know, Einstein, we just proved another one of Einstein's theories. Einstein had no physical proof right. of anything he anything. thought. Nothing. Yeah. They were all what he called Gedanken experiments, thought experiments. I encourage analysts to do thought experiments. What if, just, just play it out or play it out in a group. You know, what if North Korea collapsed? What would you begin to see? What if North Korea got aggressive? What would you begin to see? And that way, when you begin to see, say, like, oh, I thought about that. You know something? I think it's happening. And then you begin to avoid linearity. I th- but you have to be willing to take the risk of being wrong. Is that a little bit like red teaming? I know that's kind of thinking the opposite side. Where- yeah, red, red teaming is one way. But I just think it's, I mean, I, again, you don't need an analytic tool. You just need an analyst to just sit and think. There's an interesting article in, in The Economist about three weeks ago in the Schumpeter column about the end of collaboration. We have reached the end of collaboration. That collaboration is lovely and fine, but great thoughts happen in individuals' offices. And I think that's true. Group The, the only two successful committee activities in terms of writing were the King James Version of the Bible <laughs> and the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. After that, it's, you know, it's somebody else. Um, collaboration's fine. Sharing intelligence is important. But at the end of the day, somebody has to, to be the thinker and the writer. And that's where I want to encourage analysts to... Take a risk. Think an odd thought. It may not go anywhere, but if you begin to see it, and it, again, it doesn't mean you'll eliminate all surprise. I don't think there's anything that would prepare anyone for the Arab Spring. Sorry. Off the charts. Right. Totally off the charts. Are we not allowing for that time to just kind of sit back with the constant constant taskings and needs for production and, and you know the, the rapid pace? Is there time for an analyst just to kind of think about stuff? If you're a good analytic manager, you make the time for your analysts. I, when I ran an office in INR, I made sure that some of my analysts had time to just think. And my model for this was actually Secretary Schultz. George Schultz, every six weeks or so, would lock himself in the secretary's office, has a little study in it. Lock himself in his study, take out a long sheet of legal paper, pad of legal paper, and say, where are we now? Where does President Reagan want to be six months from now? How do I get him there? And my feeling is if the Secretary of State has time to do this, I don't think there's an employee in the U.S. Right. government who doesn't have time to do this. So, but, I, but you have to make time. I had an analyst who was very, very busy with SS-20 missiles, and he wanted to also write sort of a history of the SS-20. And I said, good, as time allows, go do it. And at the end of the day, we ended up with some really good analysis. It's a, it's a long story that I'll spare you, because he took the time, and I let him take the time to write this paper. So I think 
You have to you have to help them manage their time so they have time to do this. Let me ask you two final questions. Mm-hmm. One along the same vein, one very current events to see what you think about it. Um, how one of the great things that we can we do in this country and others, but certainly here is we do do soul searching when it needs to be done. Yes. How do we make that where it's more of an after action report to go military on you a little bit or lessons okay. learned and less of a political witch hunt fire story? How, yeah. how do we turn Iraqi WMDs into how do we do this right the next time? How do we turn the torture report into how do we interrogate people without you know causing a firestorm? <laughs> you know. How, can we depoliticize the lessons learned process when intelligence does fail or when it succeeds or when it doesn't do exactly what it needs to? Well, the first thing you have to do is have a lessons learned process in the intelligence community. <laughs> I mean, the military, especially the, uh, the Army, is the best at this. No offense to your former service, but they, you know, the, 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 the Center for Army Lessons Learned call out of Fort Leavenworth about 200 and something people, as I recall. You know how many people are doing lessons learned in the intelligence community staff? 2.5. I know the 0.5 guy. I know a guy, it's half his duty. So we don't take this seriously. And you don't only learn from your mistakes. Sometimes you learn from your successes. Well, that succeeded, but it didn't go according to doctrine. Is the, was this a fluke? Or was it doctrine? You know, this in the military. You ask yourself, why did that work? That's not how we planned it. So first of all, you have to be serious about lessons learned. We are not. We, we just move from one set piece to the next set piece. And then, yes, you have to take the politics out of it, which is, you know, sort of takes us back to the first question we were talking about or why it's important for people to have a better understanding right. of intelligence so they have the proper set of expectations. There's an interesting formation that happens <clears throat> with senior policymakers, and John McLaughlin gets credit for this one, that when you know, each administra- each party has a bench, it's like baseball teams, and they'll have former office holders of their party come back into office and hope to fleet up to the next level or whatever. And for the first couple of years, even though some of them have been there before, they are, wow, you can do that? Wow, that is so cool. And then if they get reelected, their reaction is, so now you're going to show me the good stuff? I'm sorry. Did you think we were holding out? <laughs> so they go from wow to jaded over the course of four years. So there's this interesting relationship with the policymakers. It's right. kind of an expectations thing. Let me, let me end with this. There was a report yesterday uh, that Vladimir Putin had suggested legal overflights over the United States. Yes. Uh, and as again, as a diplomatic historian, I'm, I'm Eisenhower is either rolling in his grave or he's sitting up and going, I told you so, that <laughs> open skies idea. What, well, we what, have a treaty. <clears throat> we have a 1992 agreement, an open skies agreement. The likelihood of, of that happening in both directions, probably not very, very big, I would think. Well, <clears throat> they did um, four, five flights in 2014 and four flights in 2015. When they do these flights, there are American personnel on the aircraft. Right. So that they don't look at things they don't want. We don't want them to see. And we overfly the Soviet. I'm sorry. We overfly Russia. Uh, we'll never stop saying that, will we? Um, yeah, I think Eisenhower would be saying, I told you so. Yeah. I mean, his open skies proposal was brilliant. And when he proposed it and people said, they'll be flying over here, he says, they can see it anyway. Right. We'll be flying over there. Do you, Eisenhower, to me, is one of the most underrated presidents of the 20th century. So now the issue with the Soviet, God am I, the Russians now is they want to enhance the cameras, the electro-optical cameras, and the concern that's being voiced by the commander of STRATCOM, by Vince Stewart, who's the general running uh, DIA, is that they are now looking at, they'll be looking at other activities, infrastructure, and things that really the program wasn't about. The program was about military transparency. Right. <clears throat> now, but part of the issue apparently is, and this has been a problem since the collapse of the Soviet Union, they don't have enough imagery satellites. They just literally can't see us. And so this is one of the ways they see us. And I remember when, when they first 
went blind the first time, I think it was when Yeltsin was president, we actually discussed giving them imagery. Because the theory was you don't want a paranoid nation right. with nuclear weapons going blind. Right. So um, this is sort of so I don't think most people are aware of this agreement. It's been in, on the books since 1992. That's the Bush administration, and we overfly each other with people on board. So now they're just asking for enhanced censors um, for things they apparently couldn't see before. I mean, we don't we overfly the Soviet Union, but our our our, our satellite sensors are extremely good. Right. And we haven't lost our, right. our ability to do it. So it's an interesting. Um, it's sort of an interesting issue that most people had didn't knew nothing about until yesterday. Yeah, it's almost the reverse of the fifties, where we had no insight in what was happening right. inside the Soviet Union, and they had people walking around oh, yes, wherever they wanted to. That was Eisenhower's point. We're yeah. an open society. You right. know, we're not hiding anything. Although it's interesting when we fly the U two, we start flying the U two, and you know, I, the, the Bridge of Spies. I thought it was an interesting movie. My objection to the Bridge of Spies was that it made it look like Francis Gary Gary Powers' flight was the first flight. Right. It was the last. Right. <laughs> but. The interesting thing about that, so, and I remember this very vividly, I'm in the, I was 10, 11 years old, and Khrushchev broke the nuclear test moratorium, and he's blowing up 50 megaton bombs and 100 megaton bombs and blustering about his missiles. Now, Eisenhower could have stuck a pin in that balloon in a heartbeat, but to do it, he would have had to admit that he was overflying the Soviet Union. From whom was he keeping that a secret? Not the Russians. They knew they were, they were seeing right. U-2s overhead. He was keeping it from the American public and our allies. I didn't want him to know that we're violating Soviet airspace, which is an interesting sort of second twist. Right. So I think this is sort of an interesting issue. Um, I don't know how we work this one out. I, I think it's interesting that the military commanders are concerned that the Russians will get to see things they haven't seen before. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, if, if they have satellites, when they have satellites, satellites fly where they want to fly. Right. Well, Dr. Mark Lowenthal, thank you for taking the time to join Thanks us today here me. at SpyCast. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Vince. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember... Every Tuesday, we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's intlspycast. Talk to you next week.